Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by Hannah Gazelius, Digital Editor in London, Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin in Seattle, and Correspondent John Evans in Brazil. We're going to take a look today at three of the top stories that we rolled out this week, starting with land-based salmon farming. It is a topic that we write a lot about on Intrafish, as any dedicated readers know, because it is a fascinating sector. It's moving very, very quickly. There's a lot of money going into it, a lot of risk involved. Uh, Hannah, you covered uh, one new project that is being developed in Sweden. This one's quite interesting because uh, if it does come to pass, it will be Europe's largest land-based salmon farm. Um, but it follows on with a, a trend that we've seen um, in our coverage, and that's that these land-based projects, though they have a lot of um, a lot of uh, sustainability bona fides, um, there's also now increasing local opposition. So tell us about the project and what you found out in your reporting. This is a project based um, just north of Gothenburg on, on um, the Swedish west coast. And um, the reason why it's, it's based where it is, it's because um, it's only two hours drive um, to Oslo and it's also quite close to Denmark. And it's close to the sea, so it's good for the kind of the local communities kind of used to the, the fishing industry. And also Sweden, as opposed to Norway, is, is um, uh, part of the EU. So um, the owners think it's it's a very strategic location in terms of um, getting kind of uh, the industrial and uh, technolo- technological innovation that Sweden has a lot of. And then it's close to both Denmark and, and Norway that has a lot of uh, seafood and uh, land-based um, skills that they can um, kind of combine. Tell us a little bit about the the uh, the region. It's it's very small, um, and based on your reporting on this, it seems like um, it's sort of it, it, it's sort of um, split here. That there is tax revenue that can come into the region, and so the municipality is is uh, for it. But there's also kind of some uh, opposition that's been brewing, and it's gotten a little bit ugly. Yeah, so it's a small community. So initially, they they had um, 100% backing of, of in the local um, um, municipality on in the on the on the political level, and that's changed a little bit. And there's been some, um, as you said, local opposition, and it has gone uh, quite. Um, extreme in, in terms of that there has been some um, uh, death threats um, to some politicians that are kind of backing the project. And yeah, the, the, the community is split. So I spoke to, to the CEO, um, Roy Hoyas, and um, he was saying that they do have still a lot of support and they've been hold, holding meetings with the community to kind of get them to understand um land-based farming uh, better and to understand what this project will bring to the local area and um but it's it's obviously it's easy to understand the skepticism and the and the kind of uh, that people are nervous or a bit wary about this uh, project because as we said initially it's it's huge and it's also 
taking place in a country that hasn't seen any, um, or it's only seen one approved land-based uh, salmon farm so far, and that's 10% um, smaller than th this um, project. So um, it's a new sector in Sweden. Right, and, and this is, um, we've seen this uh, in, in other operations as well. So Nordic Aqua Farms, which is uh, um, headquartered in, in Norway, um, they've been developing an operation in Belfast, Maine, uh, and it's it's quite similar the process that they've gone through to um, kind of go through the the regulatory process of getting approval. Um, while they've been doing that, there has been um, uh, opposition. There's been you know lawsuits and um, even some vandalism. So the death threats is that's a little extreme but there have been if you go on to facebook you will see some commonalities in in communities uh, concerns about these projects and um, and as you mentioned these are these are to be expected i mean the the project will ultimately the goal if it comes to pass and that's a big if with all of these land based projects it will um, at full capacity when in 2027 it will produce 100,000 metric tons if the if this uh, comes to pass. Putting that into perspective, Sweden in 2020 imported around 45,000 metric tons of fresh salmon from Norway. So this facility alone would produce more salmon than Sweden imports in an entire year. But Hanna, even with this uh, opposition, number one quality salmon is uh, optimistic uh, about getting the project through, and other developers are actually um, considering uh, land-based farms uh, in Sweden as well. Yeah, I think there's there's, uh, there's a couple of more uh, three or four projects that might um, uh, apply for um, license in the in the coming year in Sweden. So. Um, maybe gradually it will become more of a kind of um, standard industry. And then when people actually start to benefit with jobs and, and uh, income, you know, you, you'll see both sides. Uh, but yeah, at the moment, I think it's, it's quite a, an upheaval for, for many local communities when you don't know what to expect. Thank you, Hannah. We'll look forward to sharing uh, more of these updates with our, our readers as the, as the project moves ahead. All right, well, let's move down to uh, South America. So um, this is a fascinating story, John Evans, that you wrote. Um, there has been a spate of uh, attacks uh, against the salmon farming industry, or rather the salmon farming industry has been uh, at times um, what one of your sources deemed, uh, quote, collateral damage. Um, just, just give us a sense of of uh, what is happening uh, with uh, with uh, the indigenous people in in Chile, uh, what the um, the the history and background is, and how it's affecting the the salmon farming industry. I know that's a a lot to to um, to bite off, but um, but yeah, tell us tell us what your reporting found. The first thing to say, I think, on this is. Um, it's only a very tiny minority of the uh, some 2,500 uh, Mapuche communities in Mapuche, which makes up about 12% of the uh, Chilean population, who are involved in any of these uh, activities. Even the um, even Salmon Chile itself, through a statement it issued through 150 trade groups a couple of years ago, um, said words to that effect 
that, that you know that the my uh, vast majority of, of, of people uh, in the Mapuche community are peace uh, loving and just want to get on with their lives and uh, put food on the table basically. So that's uh, that's the first thing to say. I mean, this goes back about 300 years or more back to the uh, Spanish colonization of South America and then later uh, Chile's um, independence uh, from um, from Spain um, and then later through to the uh, the Pinochet regime which ended in uh, 1990 um, and it's it, it, you know it hasn't gone away to various extents to various extents during that period. What I mean, what happened was the land was transferred uh, to lumber companies, uh, forestry companies uh, by governments. And um, the Mapuche people, you know, or certainly the ones who, uh, you know, are interested in their own sovereignty being the buzzword these these days, um, you know, want it back, a slice of it back or all of it back. One of the really surprising things uh, about your piece, John, was you uh, mentioned that Chile uh, is the only Latin American country that does not recognize uh, the indigenous uh, uh, people, and, and that's a big part of uh, of the struggle and um, and the fight. Correct. That's right. Uh, well, that may be about to change because uh, last year Chile had a referendum, which voted uh, and the public voted heavily in favor of rewriting the constitution, which will um, bring in, um, or that certainly the uh, Mapuche people and the, the rest of the indigenous population expect them to be brought in uh, on, uh, under the constitution in terms of rights. And uh, the Constitutional Assembly, which is uh, drafting the new con uh, constitution, is um, headed by a Mapuche academic, uh, Elisa Longcon. So, yeah, that is interesting from that point of view. Um, the question is whether, uh, how far it will go. I mean, we're talking about, or they're talking about uh, having quotas for um, for congressmen, uh, lawmakers, uh, which they've never really managed to do, get, get, get representation at a national level. They've had some successes at lower levels, but on, on a national scale, uh, they found it difficult to, to penetrate through the, um, the traditional parties. Now, you talked to a couple of uh, Mapuche uh, experts, uh, academics that, that uh, research the Mapuche people and, and the history. And I, I guess, you know, for the seafood industry, one of the big questions is whether or not the attacks that have affected uh, uh, the companies, um, including attacks directly on um, Chilean salmon farming offices, um, you asked them whether or not the industry itself, the, the salmon farming industry itself, is uh, a target. What, what was their uh, thought on that? Um, well, you know, they, they seem to really be saying that it's a side effect. And as, as, uh, as uh, one, uh, one of the experts said, uh, collateral damage, that they're not deliberately targeting the salmon industry. It's just that the salmon industry has got tangled up in it. And it's not that statement I mentioned earlier from uh, the 150 trade groups and um, chambers of commerce, you know, um, shows that they were all concerned about the situation. Uh, forestry seems to be the, the main target. What is it right now that's causing this particular uh, flare up? 
I just think it, it's just another upsurge in, uh, in in violence. You know, they want their their voices heard. I don't think there's any particular incident that set it off. I mean, uh, even though the new constitution has been drafted, some some groups are still not happy about that. So that can, um, is said by some experts to have you know implications for the future that they you know they they, they may not be ever happy or not happy for decades to come until you know they, they they get what they want so john you mentioned uh in the uh history of chile and the independence from spain during that handover uh a lot of the mapuche land ended up in the hands of lumber companies is is there a sense that there is any kind of particular opposition to uh, foreign companies coming in? Um, obviously, the two of the largest are Norway-based uh, Movie, which is the largest salmon farming company in the world, uh, and and Cermak. Although Cermak is ultimately owned by uh, the Japanese conglomerate Mitsubishi, um, or is this more just a, a general um, sort of anger directed at um, at uh, industry overall? Um, I'm not sure it's so much that they're foreign. It's just that the fact that they are operating on um, what the Mapuche say is their own land that they're entitled to. Um, I don't think particularly they're singling out for, uh, foreign companies. I think you know the domestic uh, Chilean companies as as much as anything uh, or as anyone you know are potential targets uh, for for these groups. So if if, uh, if if you were to say what the salmon farming industry can expect or what they should do, um, I mean, you, just your reporting kind of ended on a note of some of this is just kind of uh, there's there's kind of a wait and see element. There's sort of a rather than this is what you would do to to solve it. Um, I think companies can can sort of expect that it'll stay in this kind of uh, amorphous area, but. Is there any sense of what companies could do uh, in, in terms of partnership with the Mapuche people or anything along those lines that might uh, at least uh, be some kind of uh, some kind of outreach and, and bridge some of this divide? I did ask that question and was told that it might work with some communities uh, as long as uh, salmon companies respect Mapuche uh, traditions and their respect for nature. One of the problems. Uh, uh, for the Mapuche is they they believe that um, forestry companies and others uh, don't respect the the nature or the environment in the same way that they do. Um, so the fact that they're again going back to that point, the fact they're on their land is uh, in, it seems to be the sort of focal point of it. Right. Well, John, uh, we'll keep on top of this as as uh, as stories continue to develop on it, and let's uh, let's hope there's um, a decline or uh, a complete stop in in the violence. But uh, but uh, for now, it looks like um, it's it's going to be something that will be uh, unfortunately um, maybe a part of doing uh, doing business there. All right, we're going to move over to you, Rachel Sapin, and one of our stories this week that really jumped out was. Uh, a woman by the name of Imani Black. Um, tell us a bit about what Imani is doing uh, and a bit about the uh, pretty amazing history of, uh, of the Chesapeake and, uh, and the role that African-Americans played in that um, since, uh, well, since the earliest days of, of uh, the United States. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, earlier this week, I got to speak with, or gosh, I guess it was last week, I got to speak with Imani Black. Um, she is a uh, shellfish aquaculture uh, scientist, and she's also an African-American oyster farmer. Um, she's building a career in the rapidly growing aquaculture industry in the Chesapeake Bay, Bay Area um, in Maryland, uh, where you have lots of oyster aquaculture going on. Uh, that's really a very cool industry in itself, just because um, uh, oyster and shellfish aquaculture is actually kind of restorative aquaculture for the ocean um, as, as a filter organism. So it's just a cool area of aquaculture in general. And then you have Imani, who is working in the industry. Um, she grew up in the Chesapeake Bay. She comes from a long history of watermen um, in Maryland that dates back over 200 years, uh, which is really cool. And she just created an organization last year uh, following some of the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, uh, um, issues. And it's called Minorities in Aquaculture. And uh, yeah, she spoke with us a bit about just how hard it is to find <laughs> and or recruit uh, women of color to the leadership positions in aquaculture and also um, to more of the marine sciences uh, roles that are available in aquaculture. So. We yeah. have a story up on that now, and it's really important for the industry, I think, that that uh, we focus on these issues of race and gender inequality. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing story that that she has um, and a really fun story that you wrote as well, just to hear about her um, her passion. And I think that's kind of what really jumped out to to me is, you know, if you if you want to bring somebody into a career um, she had a great line, you know, saying that when you can really tell somebody your when when you can tell somebody your connection to what you're doing uh, and what you love, they can feel that, and that really um, that really resonates. I think with anybody that loves what they do, and when you're talking to anybody that clearly loves what they do, and you know, she's really using that and capitalizing on that to encourage other uh, women of color um, to see aquaculture as a potential career. Um, and I just thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, so t help, tell me a little bit about, um, kind of some of her, you know, some of the mentoring that she's doing or some of the things that she's trying to, um, you know, trying to demonstrate to her network in terms of, um, where, uh, where their careers might, might go. Yeah. So she's basically, you know, it's more of like a, a mentorship, um, making a safe space kind of organization is, is the feel I got from her. And it really is just about, you know, people kind of sharing their personal stories with aquaculture um, at this point, because it has been hard to find other um, women of color to join the group. Um, she did share that with me when we were writing the story, you know, she's working more with people from different organizations, um, seafood nutrition partnership, uh, the Smithsonian, and Noah as well um, to kind of just get, um, you know, get the space started. Um, so I think really what she kind of is working on as far as I can tell from just speaking with her um, for the story, you know, she just really wants to get the word out there about kind of how connected African-Americans um, in the United States are to, you know, maritime history um, and she kind of, you know, um, incorporates that, I think, into, into what she presents 
um, as part of this group. But yeah, I think in terms of, um, you know, specific initiatives, um, I think she's still kind of building up the base of, of people to be a part of the um, minorities and aquaculture group. Uh, she was kind of telling me she's already getting um, people contacting her, asking her to provide a list of all these women in color they can hire, <laughs> you know, for these leadership roles and for these roles at universities. Um, she's actually a faculty assistant at the University of Maryland. And she said, tells me, she's like, I would love that list as well. <laughs> like, I would like to find those people. And she's great. She's like, well, I'm going to find those people. That's why I have this platform. Um, and she certainly impressed me with just, um, uh, just, I learned a lot in talking to her for just about 30 minutes regarding, you know, just all the prominent African-American individuals who helped shape, you know, our uh, commercial fishery. Um, in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, even down to more well-known people like Frederick Douglass. And uh, so uh, I think the best way to kind of learn about what she does is probably uh, definitely to go to her website, you know, miangpo.org uh, and uh, kind of take the time to research, uh, you know, African-American uh, history as it relates to, you know, U.S. maritime um, history. Yeah, it was, like you said, it was just kind of a, a primer on, um, yeah, just some of what she'd learned and some of that history. And I wanted to go, uh, you know, learn learn more about it as well, because I I, um, I did not know it was such a rich history um, in seafood uh, as well. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, this is something that I know you and I have talked about a lot, Rachel, and we've just kind of talked about in general over the past several years. Um is the need to bring new faces into the the industry and you know this is just one initiative that um you know the industry should really be supporting this and and looking at ways that they can help uh foster and establish different kinds of, of networks like this because uh if the industry wants to continue wants to uh evolve and develop it is going to uh, need to go find uh, more people, a more diverse uh, group of, of, uh, of talent. And the way to do that is you have to show that you uh, have, uh, that you're able to, to deliver a career to those people and that it's going to be a place where they're uh, accepted and that they can, um, and that they can advance, uh, you know, advance up into um, the roles where they want to, where they're willing to want to move. So, um, yeah, just a great story. And, um, like I said, if you want to learn more about it, uh, the minorities and aquaculture site, I'll say it again, M I A N P O.org. You can check it out. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm sure that we will be talking to Amani again, uh, in the future and, and be tracking kind of how the group goes and what other, um, what other successes that, um, that members of her network have in their careers. Well, okay, folks, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember that you can find our news 24-7 on intrafish.com. You can sign up for our newsletters there. If you're a subscriber, you can sign up for the alerts feature. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways to stay connected with us. Uh, we are on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, um, both our company accounts and our reporters' accounts. So reach out if there's any tips, ideas, thoughts. Uh, you can get us at any time uh, at editorial at intrafish.com as well. And we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next week.